0: Micah chapter 4, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken." All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief, I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever." As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold the daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud, have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labour. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hands of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth.
1: Good morning, everybody. Morning. If we've not met yet, it's, uh, my name's Ben. of the ministers here at Harrington Park Anglican. This will be the second sermon I've preached this morning, so I'll definitely lead us in prayer. Uh, Just one little thing first. So, if you're a a note taker or you follow on the outline, uh, point one will be way way longer than all the other points. Just wanted to say that in case you freaked out that you know we'll anyway. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll uh, look at this part of God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the prophet Micah, that uh, you spoke through him. You had his words recorded down, and they were written ultimately for us. Father, we pray that uh, as we consider what uh, he reveals to us of you uh, this morning in chapter 4, that uh, you'd uh, give us open hearts and minds, that we wouldn't harden ourselves against it, but we would delight to hear your Word, to be trained, rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness by it, that we might be uh, uh, better equipped to serve our Lord and Saviour Jesus, and therefore others as well. In his name we pray. Amen. Our national anthem recognises, quite rightly, that history can be understood when it's broken up into stages. And it's on history's page that we want every stage to advance Australia fair. Whatever stage of history we're in, we want Australia to be advancing with fairness. That's about as patriotic as any true Australian ever gets. Now from a westernised, post-European settlement perspective, Australia is actually a very young country. Now of course we've got a a very rich and immense history with Aboriginal Australia, but from the post-European settlement perspective, Australia is very young. So when I think of stages in history, especially of stages in Australian history, well, I'm thinking only of decades. So, for example, the 80s is a stage in Australian history. (laughs) The hair and the shoulder pads were large. (laughs) We had a long-serving Prime Minister. Gee, what a contradiction in terms that is today. A (laughs) long-serving Prime Minister who could down a beer with stunning speed. Mullets... Hey, hey, Wonderland, 1985, uh, Wonderland uh, uh, was open. Copper coins, we won some boat race, and Paul Hogan gave us a tourist industry. From the 90s, I remember the Nokia 3310. (laughs) The Tamagotchi, an evil thing invented by the devil. Show bags at the Easter show. How many people have bought showbags at the Easter show? Was kidding, yeah. was And the ever-so-short-lived fad of hyper-colour T-shirts. And that TV show that put the annoying American nanny with the uh, British family, and we laughed uh, whilst they butted heads in a comedic way all the time. But also as Australian culture, uh, American culture took over post-British Australian culture in that era, and we now have... Trick-or-treaters during Halloween and kids that say Z instead of Zed, which, when I'm Prime Minister, will be considered a capital (laughs) offence. But on the bigger world scale, human history is usually thought of as something in ages or, or stages or eras or epochs. You might speak of the Victorian era or you might speak of the Stone Age. You might speak of the Renaissance or the postmodern era or of the medieval period. Even if you have no interest in history whatsoever, the chances are you've heard some of those terms before. The way we think about periods in history is by thinking about what people were good at. So when we were good at torturing people and ruling by monarchies, that was the medieval period. (laughs) When we discovered electricity and made factories, that was the Industrial Revolution. When we learned to make axes and spears, that was the Stone Age. The internet, social media and smartphones, well, they've put us in the digital age or the information age. Stuff we're good at determines the age. But in the Bible, the periods of history are defined much more by what God is doing than what we're doing. And thankfully, and this is why another reason to love the Bible... There's actually only really three major periods of history that matter. It's a lot simpler. There's the creation all the way through to Jesus' ministry, then there's the last days, then there's eternity. Just so we're all on the same page. So, you know, the Jesus ministry bit, there's his birth, death, his resurrection, and the flaming, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Creation there is basically one era, one period. The last days is where we are, and then eternity, we've got the life-saving ring and the, 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 uh, the gavel, so it's judgment and salvation for eternity. Now, the prophet Micah, in his first three chapters, has mostly been warning Israel that because of their continued rebellion against God, the ten northern tribes would be conquered by the Assyrians, and the two southern tribes would soon be conquered by the Babylonians. He said that the city of Jerusalem, along with its temple, is going to be turned into rubble. And history has shown us that he was 100% correct. God is a God who speaks and says what he plans to do, and he reveals it, and then he acts in history to do it, and everyone can see it. But then in chapter 4, today's chapter, he turns from a message of present judgment to a message of future hope. And the future hope is about the last days. Remember, they're not in the last days. They're in that creation of Jesus bit, right? He he says, now I'm going to tell you about something far off, the next era, the next period. And he wants Israel to see that even though they are going to suffer, they're going to suffer, uh, suffer incredible loss and hardship, that it's not the end. God has a plan for how things will eventually turn out. It's kind of like a a woman in labour. That's actually an image that's given to us. We'll see a little bit later on. Yes, it's bad, but there's a wonderful thing in the future which you can look forward to. Changes the the context of the pain and the suffering. The wonderful thing that God's talking about here is, well, it's what's going to happen in the last days. You're in the labour now, but look ahead. What's happening in the last days, that's the wonderful thing. That's going to give some context to your current suffering. So what are these last days? What are they going to be? What are they going to look at, uh, look like? Well, that's what we're going to learn this morning. If you're a note taker, we're point one on your outline. The last days will be marked by God demonstrating his rule in a very obvious and deliberate way. So you can look at your Bible, or if you prefer, the words will be on the screen, chapter 4, verse 1. Micah turns and he says, in the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Now, in the mind of the ancient Israelite, a high place on the top of a mountain, that's a secure place. That's where you build a, a fortified city because it's easy to defend. If you're on top of the hill and the enemy's coming out, you just roll the boulder down, right? It's much easier to defend when you're on the top. And... The pagan nations uh, reasoned that we were here and the gods were sort of above us. So if you're on top of a really high mountain, you're kind of closer to the God who looks after you and your land. And so a high place is also a place where you're going to sort of meet with the God. Well, here we're told Yahweh, the true God, the only true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, he would be seen to be on this mountain that's higher than all the others. In other words, God would make it clear that he is above all other powers. That was something he will make very obvious. Uh, there are no other gods before him and there will be no other gods before him when you see that mountain go up. The last days will be marked by God's ruling becoming obvious and undeniable. And God's ruling in the last days will also be regarded as something quite attractive, something that you would want to benefit from and something that you'd want others to hear about. You'd see that mountain, you'd see God's rule established, and you'd say, I want in. Well, how does Micah put it? Verse uh, uh, 2, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's going in and there's coming out. We go in to hear the word and that word go out when God's ruling becomes really obvious you see that he offers the security and the contentment that comes from living in the strongest city on the highest mountain it's an image of security and contentment and then of course anyone who's got any sense is going to say that's where I want to go I want to learn to live as a citizen of of that kingdom of that place I want to be uh, that to be the, the God who teaches me that I live with him, and, and I want to see his word go out to the rest of the world, so hopefully my friends can come along too. When I was a kid, and this is such a Jewish kid thing, this, there's this Spielberg cartoon film called An American Tale. I don't know if it's everybody Anyone heard of the film American Tale? Oh, okay. I loved it. It's about a family of mice escaping the pogroms in Russia, where, where a lot of Russians persecuted Russian Jews. Now, we just happen to know that there was a popular saying amongst Jewish people during World War II, shortly prior and during World War II, that went, there are no Nazis in America and the streets are paved with gold. So in this movie, they sort of parody it, and there's a song that goes, there are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. (laughs) See, when you live under the threat of invasion. And in the distance you see a kingdom that offers more safety and contentment than anything else on earth, you'll do anything to become a citizen of that kingdom. You'll think about it as the place where the streets are paved with gold. You'll want to learn to live their way, and you'll want to tell your friends about it. That's why, incidentally, there's actually no such thing as a deterrent for genuine refugees. No matter what you do, if they're a genuine refugee, nothing will deter them. That's just by the by. God's ruling in the last days is going to be obvious, and it will be something that people stream to because they see just how good it is to live under his rule complete security and contentment. And as God's word goes out, so his rule extends to many people beyond the kingdom. So verse (laughs) 3 says, He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hogs. Nation will not take up the sword against nation or they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. He's exercised his rule, he's spoken. Now, sitting under your own vine and your own fig tree, well, it's, it means you've got shade, it means you've got food and it means no one else is after it because they all have their own vine and their own fig tree. It's an image of contentment, of peace. And it will happen when God is ruling in the last days. And even though that's not yet the reality for Israel during Micah's time, it is actually more than enough incentive for them to keep trusting God, to keep living under his name, or as verse 5 puts it, All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, I'm going to admit that I find it difficult to work out how best to communicate this part of God's word, to connect it with us in the here and now, both with myself and therefore with you. And that's because in our context... It's so easy not to see our desperate need for security and contentment, the kind of thing that's on view here, because frankly, we've got security and contentment already. We don't have this huge, unbeatable... Army, some military force that outnumbers us 10 to 1, surrounding the whole east coast of Australia, waiting to turn our capital cities into rubble and taking us and exporting us as slave labourers back to their own country. Our wealth has given us incredible contentment and security. Actually, scratch that. Our wealth has given us the illusion of incredible contentment and security. There isn't the imminent threat of having our homeland destroyed by a foreign army. Mind you, every time the terrorist bomb goes off in a rich Western country, when that threat sort of at least becomes a potential, I suppose, people do get unsettled. But there is an enemy that stands ready to destroy us, and this enemy is far more ominous, far more deadly, precisely because it's an enemy that can't be Seen. And worst of all, more and more Australians are becoming convinced that this enemy doesn't even exist. Of course, I'm talking about sin and the one who rightly accuses us of sin, namely the devil. If we could somehow strip back the external appearance and see into people's hearts and souls, and I'm talking regular, polite people in our area, then we'd see the most horrifying, scary, rotten, decaying sources of evil. And we'd wonder how the holy God could bear to wait a second longer before utterly destroying both body and soul in hell. In desperation, we'd yell out to them, quick, turn away from your sin, turn away from this world, Turn away from the devil. Listen to the word of God, of Yahweh, on his mountain. Become a citizen of that kingdom, of his eternal great kingdom. It's the only kingdom where you can be saved from eternal punishment. God's ruling in the last days will be so obvious, it will attract people to become part of his kingdom, but sadly, human sinfulness, especially when coupled with worldly wealth and security, stops people even seeing the obvious. That's the situation we're in. Now, the second major thing we learn about the last days that Micah teaches us about is that God's activity will be about gathering people. So, verse 6, In that day, that's still in the last days, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief, I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Now God's judgment upon people all throughout the Bible is characterized by scattering. Tower of Babel, he judges them, they scatter across the earth, right? The Assyrians scatter the ten northern tribes and never rejoined. So when he turns his favor to people... It becomes the opposite of scattering. It becomes gathering. Gathering is a sign of salvation from God. And it so happens that church, even the word church, is the gathering of those who have received salvation from God. How do you know if someone is one of God's saved people? Well, it's in their nature, in their new nature, to gather with other Christians and to hear God speak, and then to see his word go out. Now, going to church is not what makes somebody a Christian, any more than going to a garage makes you a car. You go to church, doesn't make you a Christian. But not prioritising church is actually good evidence that someone has not understood the gospel correctly, or that they may not actually be one of God's saved people. We're very good at saying the first bit of that. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. The pagans love when we say that too. But you need to hear the second part. It is in the nature of God's saved people to gather. If that's not a high priority, you've got a question. Is this person a saved person or have they understood what the gospel's really about? Now, the gathering that God does with people is going to happen under the rule of a king. This is very important. God's so far the one we've seen. God's established on his mountain, but now he tells us, as he gathers people, it's going to be under the rule of a king. So, verse 8, as for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now, notice there, the strong city words there on the top of the hill, right The, The watchtower... You're safe if you've got a good watchtower. Stronghold is a strong place. And the former dominion, that is like the glory days of David and Solomon in Israel, when when Israel was a great nation ruled by the king that God had chosen. They were independent. Under Solomon, there was no longer any enemy, enemy threat, and people from far across the world came to hear God's word through his king in Jerusalem. Now, of course, we know that the king God chose to rule over Jerusalem is Jesus. And that's why it's no surprise that the New Testament, even though it assumes rightly that Jesus rules over absolutely everything, still wants to make the point that Jesus specifically rules over the church. He is the head of the body, of the church. That's because he is that king of the gathered people of God. That's the church. Jesus' body is the temple. And that temple on Mount Zion was raised up. Jesus was raised from death. And he was given all power and authority. And again, when Jesus was raised, it was God installing a permanent king in Jerusalem. And from him, the word of God goes out not only to the Jews in Jerusalem, but it extends Samaria, the ends of the earth. So the people from all over the world are invited into his kingdom. And we see this beautiful reality every Sunday. You think about it, we're here on the other side, right? The other side of the world from where Jerusalem is. And yet there are people from different nations that gather in the name of the risen king, Jesus it so happens that if you were to look at the religion of Islam and the population thereof you see huge concentrations in small areas so like in the Middle East there's there's way more Muslims than almost everywhere in in, in, in Malaysia you get another concentration right they're really same with Buddhism same with Hinduism you get really concentrated pockets of the population in certain areas Not so with Christians. Christians are spread everywhere. You can't sort of point and say there's one really big concentration compared to anywhere else. Isn't that fascinating? The word of God has gone out from that exalted king, from his secure city, and it has actually gone to all the world, and we gather to hear him speak to us and to see his word go out to others. Well, we do it every Sunday. Now we've seen that according to Micah, the last days will be characterised by God making his wonderful ruling obvious, that he will gather people to hear his word and to see it go out. And for the Israelites of Micah's day, who are about to be in a dreadful situation, the last days gave them reason to be a hoping people. And that's the third point. The reality for Israel, in the south at least, is that they would soon lose their king They'd be taken into captivity, and the city with its temple would be destroyed. So we read verse 9. Why do you now cry aloud, Have you no king? That's a rhetorical question, of course they don't. Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But there's the the biblical image, the woman in labour. You don't have to be a woman to know that it's incredibly painful. Back in the day, there would also been, for a labouring woman, the fear of death, both for the mother and or for the baby. But once the baby's born, there's the joy, there's the celebration. And things are never the same as they were before. The hardship that Israel would have to face before the last days is going to be like that. Yes, it's going to be horrible, but they've given something very grand and wonderful to look forward to. And that actually, when you've got a context for your suffering, I think it makes an important difference. Once they see that this is in fact part of God's plan, that God is sovereign, is controlling these events, he's bringing about his plan to usher in the last days then it's going to give them reason for hope in the midst of suffering, just like the labouring woman. So verse 11, But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Yes, Israel will suffer. But God is definitely going to bring about the last days and he is sovereign over all that is happening. And it's for that reason that his people can have real hope. By the way, it's the same for us in Christ. It's the same for us who have come to that heavenly Jerusalem yet still find ourselves in the situation where these last days have not been completed. There are still people fighting wars. They haven't all beat their sores into to plowshares. God has made his rule very obvious by raising Jesus from the dead and calling people from all nations into his kingdom. But the word of God is still in the process of going out. And he's holding off bringing the final judgment so that more people can come in. And that means that for our situation, for our circumstance, it's really one of the wonderful things about being a Christian, really, is to know that even in... The, the sort of immense struggle that suffering often brings and can bring to us, and probably will at, in all different ways at different times, you can know that God is only ever sovereignly in control of what is going on, regardless of the severity, and that there's only ever good at the end. It contextualises suffering to be in God's kingdom, to know that the last days are going to be complete, You will live and reign with Jesus for all eternity in that safe, stable, secure city. But of course, the final judgment will come. We even get a picture of it in the last verse, verse 13, rise and thresh, daughter of iron, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill, gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. And, of course, whenever an army goes out to fight, it's the king that leads them. And it so happens that Jesus will be the one who brings this final judgment. But in the meantime, Israel will suffer in exile, just like we currently suffer in this world whilst we're away from our heavenly home. Now, I've become um, a bit of a broken record Not uh, sort of inadvertently in having two implications, and I've got the same thing again today, just the way I think about this, right? But there are two ways that I can see that this uh, really should uh, apply to us in our current context. First of all, you've got to realise we're definitely in the last days. The time between Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Spirit, that begun, begun the last days, and they will go on until whenever... God has chosen for Jesus to return and judge the world. We're somewhere in there. Could be tomorrow that the last day's end. Could be in a thousand years. I've got no idea. But what that means is that we're now in the context where if you look at God's plan, what God's doing in this period of history, where it's very simple. What's he doing? He's calling people into that safe, secure relationship with him. We come as his citizens to hear his word And then that word goes out. Very simple. If you're alive and you're a Christian, you're alive to hear the word of God, learn to live, walk his paths, and to see his word go out. That's what you're about. It's easy for us as Christians to say, well, you know, I'm a... a, a, What's a profession? I'm a carpenter, I'm a drummer. (laughs) As if that's a real profession. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a whatever, right? And I happen to also be a Christian. No, 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 no. You are a Christian. You're one of those people who's a citizen of the kingdom of God who wants to see the Word go out and other people come in. And it just so happens that uh, in your role, in your citizenship in heaven, you, in order to make money, do X, Y, or Z. You see the difference there, right? Your first identity, if you're living in the last days and you're a Christian, your first identity is as a Christian. And you're, 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 what your life is about is keep hearing the Word of God, and seeing it go out to other people. That's what our lives are. And that sort of ties into the second implication, uh, which uh, has to do with what we do at church. You see, in the first Bible reading, Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus makes it clear that he is that city, he is that temple, he is that God that he's raised and given all authority and power by his resurrection and now calls people to himself. And that means, sorry, next slide, that hearing the word of God, now that we have been called in, is actually the high point of what we do when we gather. It's not the singing that is the high point at church, as much as I love singing and music, as you well know. It's not even the sermon that is the high point of our gathering at church. It's not even the praying that is the high point of our gathering at church. The high point of our church gathering is the Bible reading. It's not especially exciting or glamorous, but that, if we are God's gathered people under the risen King Jesus, that is the highest point of what we do. Because it's the Bible being read by which God speaks to us as we are his gathered people. Hearing a Bible reading explained and applied, which is the purpose of a sermon, is actually to help us learn how to live as citizens in God's kingdom and bring his word out to the rest of the world. But the Bible reading is the pure uncut stuff. It's God speaking to his gathered people. Not enough time in our meeting for a Bible reading or a second Bible reading. We should cut out a song. We should cut out something else, cut out the announcements. The high point of us meeting together, if this is all true, which of course it is, is we're gathered as God's citizens to hear him speak to us. That happens as his word is read. And the same thing can be said when we're not gathered, can't it? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this grand and beautiful vision of the last days that Micah gave as hope for the then-suffering Israel and that we can learn from it because, of course, ultimately it's written for us who this side of the judgment are still seeing the last days being worked out. Father, we thank you so much that no matter what situations we find ourselves in, even if they're really difficult and painful, that we can live with a sure and certain hope of a wonderful, safe, contented security living under your rule. We thank you that uh, you showed your, your word to Michael be true by raising up the true temple, and uh, that Jesus, when he was raised, did begin and is still in the process of calling people from all nations to himself. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see your view of history, that we would see the people around us Uh, is in desperate need of coming and joining us in that otherworldly kingdom with Jesus. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.